Well, Heidi left us with a bit of a cliffhanger there, so we're going to see if we can resolve that this morning. Uh, we've got a great, uh, a, great wheel, a, a great amount of work to do this morning. We're going to try and wrap up our series on the life of David. Uh, so I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this word preserved for us. Thank you for this account of David's life. We pray now that by your Holy Spirit who is here with us, that it might be life and truth for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, perhaps before the series on King David started, you knew quite a bit about David. Would that be fair? You knew some things about about David. I hope you've learned some more. Here's uh, the statue of David. Uh, let, me, let me see if we can put some things up. We knew that David was a shepherd, didn't we? He was looking after sheep. And we knew that the Lord was his shepherd. You know, Psalm 23. Well, that, that's, that's pretty good. We know that, uh, that David became a saviour for Israel because he defeated a big tall guy called... Okay, we knew that one, didn't we? We knew that he defeated Goliath. He became a saviour for, uh, for uh, Israel. We knew also probably that he was a sinner, right? With the case of Bath, Bathsheba, right? We knew that that happened as well. And because of that, uh, we, we knew that he'd written some songs. In fact, I don't know if you remember, does anyone remember how many of the 150 Psalms King David wrote? Look at this man. He said 73 with two in conjecture. The answer is absolutely right. So well done. Play on for the car, mate. I think we had one earlier, so we can um, give that to you. Um, no, that's right. About half the Psalms, we think, are written by King David. So we knew he's a songwriter. We knew that his great son was Solomon. Most of you would have known that. And that his greatest son was Yeah, that, that, that's the right answer. Remember, guys, when I go to you, What's the answer? And you don't know at all. I told you what the answer is, didn't I? So who's David's greatest son? David's greatest son is? That's right. The answer is always Jesus. Okay, so we knew all that. And perhaps as we've looked at the things that we've done so far in this series, you've walked away going, David is, in fact, a model man. He's wise. He's godly. He's hard fighting. He plays a tune. What's not to like about him? We love him. But what we're going to do this this morning is we're going to basically look at the end of David's life. And I'm going to feel, I'm going to, I reckon that you will feel that we've defaced the statue of David. But here's the thing. It's in the scripture. And if you didn't know this about David, God thought it was important that you did. He included it in his word in all of its breadth. And so what we're going to look at today is not pleasant but it is important for us to look at. And what we're going to do is we're going to think about David's decline. We're going to think about his legacy, his legacy. And as I do that, I want you to think about your legacy. Legacy is what you're going to leave behind. We're going to look at David's legacy, and I want you to think about your own. What are we going to leave behind? David's legacy, the end of his life, is in decline. And decline, we see, happens one decision at a time. Often there are catastrophic things, but a lot of them are sown one decision at a time. And they reap a whirlwind. Let's have a look at some of the uh, decisions that led to David's decline. The first one I want to kind of point to you is to do with wives. 
Now you'll notice that that's a plural, isn't it? He had eight wives, and it says there that he had ten concubines. And you think to yourself, what is a concubine? A concubine is a lady who you like, but you don't want to be committed to in marriage. And if everyone can read the euphemism in between all of that, you get what concubines are for, okay? Uh, It's really someone for personal favours. And he has ten of them, because eight wives were not enough. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? All right, well, what about kids? Well, we're told that David has at least one daughter. We're given her name. Her name is Tamar. And he has at least 19 sons by his 8 plus 10. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? We're not going to go through all 19 of them, but we're going to talk about Amnon, his eldest, Absalom, his second, Adonijah, and Solomon, who I think is about number 8 9 or 10, depending on how you count a whole bunch of bits and pieces. But much later down the line. Look, that's, that's enough of a story already, isn't it? I mean, wow, what's going on here? There's lots of complexity. But there is disaster in David's family. And we heard a little bit of that in the reading from chapter 13. Horribly, Amnon rapes his sister, half-sister, through uh, another mother, Uh, And that is an absolute tragedy that happens in David's household. And to make matters worse, she is the brother of Absalom. And Absalom, you just saw in that reading, actually arranges to have his brother Amnon murdered. If that's not enough, then Absalom himself will be murdered as will Adonijah later be murdered. And because it's a royal family, there's one more horrible thing to stir into the mix. A coup. Absalom, having left the king, been banished from the king, comes back and arranges to try and overthrow David. And if that wasn't enough, having survived all that, and we'll see that in a second, a second son having had his older brothers removed, has a go at it and tries to have another coup against his father. Are you convinced that it's a disaster yet? This is David's decline. And what I want to do, I want to indulge you if you can, is to come with me on a walk through these chapters until we see how Solomon ends up being the rightful heir at the end. So what we're going to do is we're going to see how it all unfolded by looking at a chapter at a time through the end of the book of 2 Samuel. So, chapter 13 contains the terrible and horrible story of Tamar. Tamar is Absalom's sister. And Amnon, his brother, has a devious desire. In fact, Uh, we see in chapter 13, you can flip along with me, we're going to look at each of these chapters, but we won't read them all. In in chapter 13 and verse 4, David's brother, his uncle, comes and asks Amnon, why do you look so haggard morning after morning? Why won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. This terrible uncle then plots a plan for him to get close and terribly He abuses his position and his sister. Now, this is an honour culture, and Tamar is utterly disgraced by her brother. 
whatever the personal, psychological and physical assault was. On top of all of that, she is shamed. And her brother bears the shame and says, you come and live in my household, I will take care of you. But nothing happens. There is no justice from the king, nothing is done about the matter. And so this brother, Absalom, takes matters into his own own hand, organizes a shearing party, invites all the king's sons. The king says, yeah, sure, go along. And there he arranges for his brother to be killed. When it happens, the terrible uncle says to David, yeah, that's exactly what everyone knew was going to happen. Everyone except who? King David. What we see in this chapter is that David is horribly out of the loop with what happened to his daughter. He's furious but does nothing. His son is killed and his brother runs away. David, in every possible way, tragically neglects his children in this chapter. He simply doesn't know enough about what is happening for them, and he fails them at every turn. In, uh, in chapter 14, we see a story told to King David about a hypothetical son. A lady comes to him. Uh, and uh, she says, it's a bit like Nathan. Do you remember when Nathan came to David and told the story about the sheep? Do you remember that? And David could see what he should do through that story. Well, here a lady comes to him and says, I've got a son who's been banished far away. Shouldn't he be able to come back home? And David goes, oh yeah, that, that should definitely happen. And she goes, oh, I gotcha. That's your son. And so Absalom the pretty boy, and you've got to read it, he is the pretty boy. He's the model kid in the family, not for good reasons. He's the beautiful one. Uh, he, with the famous hair, uh, is invited back from exile off the back of this story. And so he comes back, but King David says, you can't see my face. So he comes back from being far away, comes back into the palace, but David says, you're not going to ever see my face. That's not happening. Okay. And so we see here, David brings, brings him back, but then banishes Absalom. Now, Absalom is a pretty bitter kind of guy. And uh, he's, he's pretty and bitter. So he's pretty bitter, I think we could say. Um, in chapter 15, we see him being a very sly chess player. Uh, we see that he lines up at the gate and basically stops everybody coming into Israel with a complaint and says, guys, wouldn't it be... Wouldn't it be much better if I was in charge? Then there'd be someone to hear your case. There's no one who can help you. But if I was in charge, I'd look after you. And then he kisses them. And what it says happens is that over time, he won the hearts. He stole the hearts of the people of Israel, it says in 15.6. David doesn't know about it. And so instead he goes down to Hebron, and in Hebron he's proclaimed himself king, and what we have happening is all of a sudden a coup is taking place, and David has to flee. A messenger, in verse 13, came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David and all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem said, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. Basically what's happening is David's got to get out of town because his son is going to kill him. This is the son he spared. This is the son he welcomed back. Great repayment, isn't it? In the house of David. And so fleeing David leaves behind priests and prostitutes. Uh, the prostitutes is because 
concubine starts with a C, and it just was unfortunate for me, so I made it prostitutes. Uh, but what he leaves behind, he says, look, I'm leaving the city. I'm going to leave my concubines behind to look after the palace. I'm going to leave the priests behind to look after the temple. And if God wants to, he may bring me back to the city and restore me. I'll leave it up to him. It's in his hands. But meanwhile, we're fleeing for our lives. So he runs. And Absalom, at his height, now decides to say, hey, what should I do? What should I do now that I'm in Jerusalem? And the king's former advisor, a guy who turns on him, says, look, what you should do is you should sleep with your dad's concubines. And so they set up a tent on the roof of the palace and he does it there, in the sight of all Israel. It fulfills what was said to David in prophecy when he did the secret thing with Bathsheba. Do you remember that? God said, you've done something in private. I'm going to do something in public. That's fulfilled. And so Absalom does this terrible thing in the sight of all Israel. He, he is ascendant and David is exhausted. David has run away to the fords of the Jordan. So he's gone away. Fords, right? Not cars. Everyone, everyone clear with this? The fords is a bit of the river that you cross over, okay? So he's at the Ford dealership. No, he's, um, he's by the river. On this side of the river, trying to work out whether it would go across to the other side. And in that situation, there's a big decision that needs to be made. When David left, he left behind one of his friends and said, I hope you can frustrate the advice of the king. And so this very wise man, Ahithophel, gives advice to Absalom. He says, Absalom, what you should do is you should go tonight, take 12,000 men and go and crush David. You've got him right where you want him. In fact, don't kill everyone, just kill the king, and then all Israel will be yours. He goes, that's pretty good advice. Is there anyone else who's got advice? And David's plant. Remember David left a guy behind? Oh, actually, I've got, an, I've got some advice. Look, it's a, it's a brilliant piece of advice, but, but here's what I'd say. The king is incredibly wise. He's a, he's a canny soldier. There's no way he'd be sleeping on the fords at the moment. That wouldn't happen. What you should do is delay Get a massive army from all Israel and then go and stomp on him properly. And Absalom goes, yeah, that's, that's better advice. I think this is really good advice. I'm going to follow that advice. And so this guy, Ahithophel, goes home actually and um, hangs himself because his advice has not been followed. Divided opinions on how to attack David flourish. And then we come to this. <laughs> a lovely time that you put their World Cup into... Um, your prayers today. Does anyone know who this is? Neymar, a man who's more interested in his hair than his output. Okay? That's why he's the perfect analogue for Absalom. Okay? Absalom has famous hair. Do you know this? He has famous hair. When they would cut his hair, they would weigh it. And I can't remember. What was the, what was the weight, Paul? Do you remember how heavy his hair was? Because I said that that was your verse in the Bible can't remember sorry three yeah 3.6 kilos or something like that they would cut his hair and they'd weigh it and they'd go oh look at the hair on this man he's so beautiful and hairy or, I don't know whatever uh, here's the point though everybody loved Absalom he was famous for his hair anyway so there's a big battle now David's troops and all these troops gathered from Israel start to have a battle in a forest and Absalom is going along on his donkey and as he's going under a tree, his great locks 
get caught in the tree and the donkey keeps going and there's Absalom, this is in the Bible, hanging from his hair in the forest. And someone runs up to, uh, to, to Joab, who's um, David's chief of the army, and says, hey, bro, I saw, um, I saw Absalom hanging from a tree. And he goes, well, did you kill him? And he said, no way. When the, when the army was going out, David had said to his, to his troops, guys, whatever you do, be careful with my son Absalom. Be careful with him. And so the, the, the guy who, uh, who reports to Joab says, I wasn't going to touch him. You could give me a thousand shekels of whatever and I wouldn't touch him because the king said, don't touch him. And Joab goes, well, I'm not listening to that advice. I was going to say something else. I'm, I'm not listening to that advice. So he gets three javelins and goes and plunges them through the heart of Absalom and the rest of his troops come and cut him down. Graphic stuff, isn't it? So now the conspiracy is brought to an end, isn't it? Because you've got the one who's claiming to be king is dead. And so Joab ignores David and kills Absalom. Whew, well, maybe it's all over. Well, it's not actually. Some of you will be old enough to remember the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War, in many eyes in Australia and America, was very unpopular, certainly by the end. And what happened was when the troops returned to Australia, they were often mocked or shamed for the service that they'd done for their country. It had nothing to do with them. They were simply doing what they were asked to do. But the people in Australia and America, I think, behaved disgracefully towards them. Disgracefully towards them. That is the situation that happens when David's army comes back. In, uh, in, chapter, um, in chapter 19, David's army comes back and David is sitting down weeping for Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And his troops go, we just risked our lives for you. Absalom would have killed you, but you're weeping for him. And Joab goes and sees him and says, bro, you better get out there and talk to these troops or you will lose all of Israel. You need to go and encourage the hearts of your troops because you're weeping even though you won. So he goes out and he wins the hearts of the troops back. And to bring all of Israel back together, what he does is he moves the leadership of the army from Joab to Amasa. Amasa was the head of the army of Absalom. And he says, we've now got our country back together. To show goodwill, I'm going to pass the leadership over to this man and put him over the combined army of Israel. Can you see how this works? Trying to sew the nation back together again. The hearts of the people are back with David. But it doesn't stay that way. A guy called Sheba pops up. And he says, hang on, folks. This is ridiculous. This is not right. David, he's one of these southies. We live up the north of Israel. We've got nothing to do with this David guy. Everyone, let's split. So here's a picture of everyone going home from, um, from Woodstock. Um, so the party's over, everyone. Go home. Everyone to your own homes. And so they split and they go and they abandon David, all the northern tribes, because of this guy called Sheba. Well, David goes, this is pretty dire. We need to do something about it. Amasa, I want you to go and get all the troops together and then we're going to go and chase him. Meet me in three days' time. And Amasa takes longer than three days. 
And so David sends another general with some of the troops who are ready to go and says, go get him now, go get him. And then Joab, our friendly guy Joab, he's a lovely guy, isn't he? Joab finds Amasa in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 20 and kills him and takes over leadership of the army again because Joab feels entitled to that role. So now, amazingly, the, the, the position in Israel is great because Sheba is also killed. And if you want to read the story, it's pretty amazing. A wise woman puts an end to Sheba. Read it in, uh, in 2 Samuel 20. Amazing story. But what happens is the rebel king killed. The rebel army leader killed. The subversive bloke killed. Army now under the head of Joab and David is back in Jerusalem. All done. That's pretty good. But then, because it's a great story, but then later, a famine comes on the land for three years. There's no rain. And the people are starting to, and David inquires of the Lord and says, Lord, in, uh, in uh, chapter 21, he says, Lord, why is this like this? And God says, it's because of the Gibeonites. And all of you go, oh, yeah, of course, the Gibeonites, don't you? Nobody knows about the Gibeonites. So when Joshua came into the land, they were told to wipe out all the people in the land. But one tribe tricked Israel. They said, we've come from a foreign place. Make a treaty with us that you won't kill us. And they said, oh, fine. If you come from a long way away, we can make a treaty with you. We won't kill you. And it was the Gibeonites, and they lived in the land, and they were very tricky. And so they were foreigners in Israel. Now, when Saul, do you remember Saul? When Saul was getting his game on early on, uh, being, being a sort of a, a bit of a warrior king, he decided that he'd try and kill off the Gibeonites. And they had made a pledge before the Lord not to do that. And so because they'd done that, God said, I'm withholding the rain until you set this right. So David goes to the Gibeonites and says, what should we do? And he says, are there any sons of Saul left? He says, yes. Well, we want them and we're going to kill them. And David hands over seven of them but holds one guy back. Can you guess who it was? Mephibosheth. Do you remember his name? Mephibosheth? Because of his commitment to Jonathan, he says, I'm going to look after this man. So he's withheld. The other seven are killed. And amazingly enough, it rains. Saul and Israel's legacy echoes here. In chapter 22, because we need a break, there's a song. Song break. So if you have a look with me at chapter 22, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my saviour. From violent people you save me. Oh, my goodness. Do you think David needs to write from violent people, you save me? They're all around him, aren't they? Everywhere he would turn. And so he says, God, you alone. He praises the true king of Israel and the mighty rock of his nation. And so we have a song break in chapter 22. Then in chapter 23, we kind of have the credits roll. Do you know how the credits come on the end of the movie? Had a song break. Now we've got the credits rolled. The credits are rolling. And they're telling you about the mighty men of Israel. These are all the awesome fighters that were around David. 
But I want you to see the sting in the tail. Have a look with me at chapter 23 and verse 39. In chapter 23 and verse 39, we have all these wonderful names that we're very thankful we didn't have to read out loud as the Bible reading today. And then it says in verse 39, and Uriah the Hittite, there were 37 in all. Isn't it interesting? The writer of Samuel could have put Uriah the Hittite anywhere in that list. He puts him right at the end. And what do we know about Uriah the Hittite? He was the husband of Bathsheba. And so amidst this incredible list, the last person mentioned, the sting in the tail is just the writer goes, but you remember Uriah the Hittite? He was one of David's faithful men. David was unfaithful to him. It's a list with a tragic end. The story then finishes with the account that Stuart brought us last week of the census. David decides to take a census, and sensi aren't necessarily bad, but the issue was, if you look at 24 verse 9, Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. What did David want? I want to know how many are in my army. I want to know how strong and established I am by my strength. And so it was wrong because he was trusting in his army and not in the Lord at this point. And then David uh, suffers a plague. And you guys remember what Stuart preached last week, that on the threshing floor of uh, Aruna, we find the place where the temple is going to be established. Verse 25 of the last chapter of 2 Samuel, David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Amazing. And if you turn to, to, to the very next book, 1 Kings chapter 1, you'll find that Adonijah decides to have a coup because the way's been cleared by his brother Absalom being off the... Okay, so here's the thing. There's the account of the chapters. What can we learn? What on earth can we learn from all of this mayhem that you've just seen? What could we learn? Well, let me give you some observations and let's think together a little bit. In Galatians 6, 7 and 8, it says, do not, be, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from that spirit will reap eternal life. You put in, you get out. You start a legacy, one decision at a time. So what did David sow in? Well, let, let me give you some observations. Number one, Watch your idle time. You'll remember this from the sermon we did on David and Bathsheba. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes this, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Who should have been starving in David's household? All of his bored sons. If Amnon had had a decent job, he may not have gone so tragically astray and wounded his sister. Nothing to do. I can tell you guys, watching reruns of Bold and the Beautiful is not good for your soul. It just isn't. And so I want to suggest to you that we should rethink retirement as Christians. It shouldn't be that we envisage our future is on a hammock circling the Pacific in ever decreasing circles. That, that isn't our outcome. That's not our future. We're to be usefully deployed for the Lord. That will change. It will slow down. It will adapt. But doing nothing is not good for your souls. Don't plan a future that has nothing to contribute. Watch out for favoritism. Jacob and Esau, 
uh, Jacob and Esau, who, I've got the other ones. What, what else do we see brothers who are, um, uh, sorry, Joseph, uh, Cain and Abel. Um, there's a whole bunch of, in the, in the, in the Bible, favoritism is this poison that just kind of runs through. It really does. And so I want to suggest to you, have a look at this from 1 Timothy chapter 5. I charge you, sorry, I'll just say this. Have a listen to how weighty Paul is in saying this. Listen to who's the witness. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. In James, we're told not to show favoritism and we're definitely told not to do it to those who are rich. So what I want to say to you is be aware of favoritism and be fair. It is death in your families. It sows discontent into your workplace. It ruins your friendships. Be aware of favoritism and be fair. Watch your marriage. David had a little bit of a problem, didn't he? He started off with a few too many. I think that was the problem. It says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, when we're given instructions for kings, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Well, eight's too many, isn't it? However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. This, brothers and sisters, is to be an area of service, not of power. It's not supposed to be a place of struggling for power. It's not supposed to be a place of accumulating power. It's supposed to be a place of mutual service. In your marriages, serve one another. Watch character in leadership. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character, says in 1 Corinthians 15. Is that true? Bad company corrupts good character. I reckon that David loved having Joab on his side because he was a guy who did all the dirty work and David didn't have to suggest it. But I don't think it left David untouched. In your leadership, in your appointment of leadership, look out for character, not just competency. And then when it comes to the church, Paul writes to Titus, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. There's a standard of character within the community of the church that you should expect from me and we should expect from one another. Watch out for character. Lead with it in all the spheres that you operate. Lead with it and look for it when you delegate authority. Watch out for letting lust lead. Jesus says, I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Instead, there's a wonderful proverb. It says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Find joy in the one you're with. Don't let lust lead you. It will never lead you to good places. Instead, the scripture encourages us to be led by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit. Only two more to go. Watch for unanswered justice. There's so much wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Have a listen to this in Proverbs 21. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. See, what happened with David was he didn't bring justice to Absalom at any point. He didn't bring justice to Tamar, did he? There was no justice done. And it ate away. 
In Isaiah, we're told, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, please plead the case of the widow. We are to be a community marked by justice. Justice will be either an open wound or an opportunity for praise to God. I want to encourage you to celebrate and recognize repentance and restoration. You might think that David is so marred here that he couldn't possibly be put right again. But there is in Jesus a hope for everyone who looks something like David. In Hebrews it says this, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so we may serve the living God? Real cleansing is possible. And it's possible because of Jesus. We know it's possible because in the book of Acts, this verse that's been a banner over the whole series says this. God speaking, after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. God's verdict on David, as amazing as it may seem, is that he was a man after his own heart. And if that doesn't fill you with hope today, guys, I don't know what will. How is it possible that this David we've just seen could be called a man after God's heart? It's only by grace. It's only by God's grace. God loved and forgave him because he fell on his knees in open-hearted repentance. There's no cheating. There's no free pass to getting your life cleansed by God. But if you're brokenhearted, the God of this church... The God of our world will wash you clean, stand you up, and call you his sons and daughters. Legacy, I want you to think about yours. It happens one decision at a time. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all the gruesome detail that's included here. Father, somehow in your plan, you included this account of David's life And Father, I can only think it's to point us to your grace and mercy in your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that David could could pray, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Father, we thank you that through Jesus, you're the God who hears that prayer and answers it. May it be our prayer, and may we know your answer. Amen.